Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. For a long time, physics and chemistry were the scientific domains where so called common sense notions were routinely overturned from material objects being made up of mostly empty space to the very concept of empty space not actually being empty anyway. Now, however, it's biology's turn because it's hard to think of something more commonsensical than the idea that our brains interpret the world around us by simply detecting the information that they receive from our senses. But it turns out that that's not the way our brains really work at all. They're constantly active, unceasingly predicting what is going to happen and then comparing those predictions with received information. Well, that much we now know. But what's considerably less clear is what that all means for us, scientifically speaking, which is precisely what renowned UCL psychologist Chris Frith is trying to figure out. I'd like to talk a little bit about your intellectual origins, and I'd like to ask you specifically about your influences in psychology. You've written a little bit about that, but I want to go further back than that. And I just want to begin with your interest in science writ large, because my understanding is that you you began reading natural sciences at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And and I wanted to know if science was was an all-consuming passion of yours from an early age, or or how, how did that happen for you? Well, certainly from an early age, I was very interested in nature and doing bird watching, but also going up into the attic and mixing things together and seeing what happened. And I'm told that at the age of 12, when asked what I wanted to be, I said a research scientist. Or, really, from the age of 12? But I don't think I knew what that meant, because it was, certainly there was no one in my family was like that. I, my father was a classicist, so I did Latin and Greek. And in fact, I was the last generation who, in order to read science at Cambridge, had to do a Latin exam. Going back to the good old days when everything was in Latin. And at school I did basically maths and physics, which I was good at. And But in my gap year I, got, I learned about this mysterious subject called cybernetics, particularly as applied to people, which is sort of control theory. And that, so I arrived at university and of course at Cambridge all you can do is natural sciences. Um, there was no such thing as cybernetics. The nearest thing was psychology. But again, you couldn't do psychology in your first year. So my background is in applied mass physics and what we used to call min and Chris, which is mineralogy and crystallography. Oh, really? <laughs> and then I did psychology for, as what they call a half subject in the second year, and then I specialised it in the third year. But that means that my psychology was based on one and a third years of 
work. And in fact, the Min and Chris turned out to be very useful because you had to learn about three-dimensional maps and things like that, which suddenly became relevant. Years later. 20 years later in right. brain imaging. Right. And in fact, when I... My plan at the end was to... And in fact, I spoke to him and he'd taken me on with... There's a famous... I'm not quite sure what you would call him. Information... Anyway, Donald Mackay, who was one of the very early people doing information theory as applied to how the brain works and comp what we now call computational neuroscience. And I was going to go and do a PhD with him. But luckily, I failed to get a good enough degree. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of my life. Uh, so I, I went and did clinical psychology as a way back into doing research, which is also fascinating because today you would do research as a way into clinical psychology, but the, then it was the other way around. And again, I did this. There was only one course, which was in the Maudsley Hospital in South London, 13-month course in abnormal psychology. So I'm now technically an abnormal psychologist. And um, they rapidly said, yes, yes, very good. Um, we think you should not see patients. Why don't you do a piece? <laughs> What was it about your, your behaviour, your, your mannerisms? that? I, and I agreed with that because in a sense to see patients you have to believe that you can help them and I'm not sure. I, in a way there's a conflict between doing research where you have to doubt everything and being a clinician where you have to be confident. Right. There's always that conflict I think. So I did my PhD with Hans Isink, which was quite interesting. And... Um, and it sort of set off from there. And then one of the very lucky things at that time is we, I claim that we had the first computer in a psychology department in the country, which was in 1965. So I learned to code in machine, program in machine code as part of my PhD. Which also at some level I think might have been useful insofar as it gave you an, an exposure to more computationally oriented yes, things and yeah. certainly decrease the potential barrier of you plunging into that whole side of right, things. Yeah, yeah. Your father, the classicist, was he pleased or bemused or intrigued or what when he heard that you were going to be a research scientist at the age of 12, even if you didn't know <laughs> what that meant? Oh, I think he was pleased. Um, and in fact, the chap who told me about cybernetics was a friend of my father who was another teacher who was in biology or something, and he, we, he used to see him quite a lot, and he was a very entertaining chap, but he told us all about what were the current developments in science. But my parents were very open-minded, because on the way, I said to said I wanted to be a research scientist, and my younger brother, now known as Fred, announced that he was going to be a rock guitarist. And um, That was okay too? That was okay too, and he still is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and when, when you went to school and were interested in the natural sciences and yeah. uh, mathematics uh, at school, and then that later went into Min and Chris and so forth, did you have any particularly influential teachers who stimulated you, or were they more or less just there and enabled you to fulfill your own particular interests? At school, I guess the most influential by the time I was in the sixth form was the math teacher. 
And I, I just loved the idea that you could solve things with these equations. And you knew when you'd done it correctly, rather than writing essays about English literature or something. Right. Where I had a slightly unfortunate incident where the, basically the English teacher and I disagreed on all possible topics and oh. so on. So that, in a sense, switched me away. Was this, was this a model of the, the English professor <laughs> in, your, in your book? <laughs> And at university it was very interesting because I did particularly well at Mill and Chris and that's because the lecturers there were really strict and told you what to do and made sure you did it and so on. But the psychology was marvellous fun because I was particularly lucky because at that time I had, I was lectured by Richard Gregory, Donald Broadbent, who were the main people who started off cognitive psychology, Larry Weisskrantz, who was big in neuropsych, I mean monkey physiology and so on. And my direct tutor was someone called John Steiner, who at that time was, well, I guess, what you would call a born-again Skinnerian. So he was completely behaviorist. So I got this extraordinary mixture of behaviorism plus the new thing in cognitive psychology. There must have been a lot of behaviorists at, at, at the time. Or it, was not dis- so much. it was, it was Just well, I think in Cambridge, it never really caught on to quite the same extent as in the States, for example. Okay. And interesting that the John Steiner, after he, he stopped being, well, I don't know whether he stopped, but then he asked, subsequently he became a psychoanalyst, which always fascinates me because I think there's an interesting relationship between behaviorism and psychoanalysis because it's all about everything is determined by your early experiences in some, mm. some sense. And when you went off to, to do your PhD in abnormal psychology, um, so you, you, you gave this self-effacing anecdote about how you weren't good enough to get into computational biology or, or, or what, what later became computational biology. I'm not sure I'm going to take that 100% on, on, on your, your word, but, um, but did you have particular interests in uh, abnormal psychology or aspects of different psychological conditions? I was particularly interested, and I don't quite remember how it started, but in schizophrenia. And I read lots of books by and about schizophrenia. And Isaac produced the second edition of his enormous handbook of abnormal psychology, which I, you know is about this thick. And his students at the time were handed out different chapters, and I got the one on perception, which was mostly about schizophrenia. And what particularly fascinated me then and still does is the problem of hallucinations and delusions. So it's easy enough to understand if you've got holes in your brain why you, you, know, you become blind or deaf or can't understand concepts or something, but it's very difficult to understand why you start seeing things that aren't there or believing things that are obviously not true, although scientists are quite good at that. But we'll... And so that I was always interested in, can we think about a mechanism or how do we relate this to normal functioning? What is it that could go wrong in normal functioning that could make you start seeing things that are not there or more accurately hearing people talking about you when they're not? And was this perspective focusing on brain functioning and the mechanics of the brain, was this something that was somewhat iconoclastic at the time? Well, I guess, no. I think actually the, thinking about the brain, for me, came somewhat later. Okay. But certainly the early cognitive stuff was very much about thinking about the mechanisms or cognitive processes or information processing that underlies all our different abilities. 
So that was iconoclastic in relation to behaviourism because you started thinking about what's inside the black box. But at that stage we were just talking about cognitive processes and of course the neuropsychologists, which I came into contact a bit later, people like Elizabeth Warrington and Tim Shallis and John Morton for that matter, were interested in saying if somebody has a lesion in the brain, what does that tell us about cognitive processes? They weren't really interested in what it told you about the brain. Mm. at that stage. And what was the prevailing view of schizophrenia uh, when, you, when you began your research? Well, yes, at the end of... I finished my PhD, I did, I think, a several years post-doc, which was marvellous because I more or less did whatever I liked, because at those days money was not sort of a problem somehow or another, which I never quite understood, but it was just there. But then I joined this MRC unit, which was run by Tim Crow, which was specifically the question, main question we had to answer is what's the biological basis of schizophrenia? And this was somewhat iconoclastic because, of course, just before that, well, first of all, there was this extraordinary distinction between functional psychosis and organic psychosis in old-fashioned psychiatry. So an organic psychosis is where there was something wrong with the brain. And the functional psychosis, which schizophrenia was an example of, either meant there must be something wrong with the brain, but we don't know what it is, or it meant there's nothing wrong with the brain. So it was almost as if this was not a brain disorder. And you had people like Ronnie Lang, who was saying that it was caused by society or something like that, and it was a response to a abnormal society. Or you had other people saying it's caused by peculiar interactions in the family. And both of these ideas, in a sense, faded away because there wasn't much empirical evidence. And one of the first things we did in this unit with Eve Johnston was one of the first ever brain Im- structural brain imaging of schizophrenic patients using modern technology, which in those days was what they called CAT scans. So what, when was this exactly? This was six, 76 it was published, hmm. showing that chronic patients with schizophrenia had enlarged ventricles, and it was not due to treatment and things like that. And that, I think, had a big impact on switching the belief towards this is really a brain disorder, which we need to explore. But just to give you an idea of the problems, there's this famous DSM statistical manual for deciding how you diagnose people. And in DSM-3, which is what we had at that time, you have counterindications. So he says, you know, to get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you have to have these hallucinations and delusions and various other things but there must be no no known brain disorder. So in a sense, as soon as you find the brain disorder, it ceases to be schizophrenia. (laughs) This has changed. Begging begging a bit of a question (laughs) now. This has changed. And the other thing we did, which I'm still very proud of, is um, this was the days when they had... I mean, they first discovered the antipsychotic medication in 55, I think, by accident. And they all turned out to be dopamine-blocking drugs and we did an experiment where we had one of the standard treatments is with something called flupenthixol which is interesting because it has two isomeric forms and the left side, I can't remember which way around it is, but I think the left one blocks dopamine and the right hand one doesn't but it has lots of other effects so you could do a very tight comparison and indeed yes the one that blocked the dopamine receptors reduced severity of symptoms over the course of four weeks whereas the beta one was no different from placebo. So that, I mean, there are very, various interesting things in that result. First of all, it seems to be very specific to this dopamine blocking, which again relates it to the brain. 
And that still seems to be true. I don't think they've progressed that much. Secondly, that everybody got better, including the ones on placebo. Hmm. And thirdly, that this effect was specifically on hallucinations and delusions and not on the so-called negative symptoms, which are the retardation and um, poverty of speech and things like that. So in a sense, you were finding an effect of dopamine blocking, which is clearly a very low-level brain-type intervention, with an extremely high-level subjective experience. In a sense, my question then was, how do we bridge the gap? That brings up bridging gaps of low-level to high-level in all sorts of ways, even beyond schizophrenia. But Mm. I'd I'd like to stay with schizophrenia for uh, a little while and just chart the evolution of our understanding of that uh, and to to where we are today. Um, But first I'd like to uh, go back and talk about the societal understanding and appreciation of, of this disease because my sense is that that has also changed enormously uh, since the time when you first started doing your research. Not to say that everybody's got it right or, or yeah, really yeah. understands, but it, 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 the word means, I think, in the popular consciousness, something quite different today than it, than it meant then. Is that a fair statement? Maybe not. Well, if it's, not sure, as I told you before, if yeah. it's wrong, just say it's, you know, that's yeah, rubbish. I, or something. No, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I, what I don't really know is what it meant to people in the 50s and 60s, if they knew it the word at all. I mean, they knew about mad people, and they knew that they lived in these big asylums, and you occasionally saw them on the street talking to themselves, and um, they probably thought they were a bit dangerous. And I'm not sure that that's changed that much. I mean, they're, they're, nowadays, I'm not quite sure how true it is now, but certainly several, um, in the past, if you say schizophrenia, people think bit mind mm. and multiple personality which of course is completely wrong, and it's a rather funny term because schizophrenia doesn't mean split mind, but it meant that there was a split between your different faculties like emotion and reason and motor and perception and all that sort of stuff. So a classic example would be in the sort of, what do they call it, peculiar affect. So that you, you know, you would say to the patient, your mother is very ill, and they laugh. It would be that sort of splitting and not the multiple personality that people believe about. And of course what happened in my time was that the big asylums were closed down so that these people were no longer over there somewhere. They were in hostels or on the streets or whatever. The other thing that's happened in my lifetime, which I find strangely amusing, as I said in the olden days, if you saw someone walking along the street talking to themselves, they were schizophrenic. Now they have a mobile phone. Yeah. <laughs> and they may or may not be schizophrenic right, yeah. on top of that. <laughs> um, uh, let's, um, let's move to our understanding. Yeah. Uh, you talk a little bit about the, uh, the medication that, yeah, yeah. That, that was focused on, on dopamine and, yeah, yeah. and neurotransmitters and so yeah. forth. If you could just give me a sense of how our understanding of schizophrenia has, has evolved in the past... Uh, 30 or 40 years, and and, and why? Well, this, of course, is very much my story. So I was, as I say, I was interested in this problem of hallucinations and delusions. And there's one particular delusion that I became very interested in, which is the delusion of control, which occurs in about 16% of cases. And this is where the patient says, I'm not in control of my actions. Some alien force is causing me to do things, and this could be even simple things like lifting up the glass and drinking. 
I have a slide somewhere, I can't remember quite what it is, but this is from a very early... It's very difficult, interestingly, you would just think people would collect these symptoms, but it's actually quite difficult to find examples, and they all come from more or less three papers, one of which is mine. But there's one patient is saying, the force is causing me to move. And I say, but this is pre-Star Wars. <laughs> but then you have the interesting question, how can it be that... Movement, and there's also something called thought insertion, which is even more peculiar, which is yet to be sold, where the patient says, there are thoughts coming into my mind which are not mine. It's very odd. Because how can a thought in your mind not be yours? Yes. And you have to think, well, is there a little label that comes with each thought saying mine? But when you think about action, that's much easier, because, for example, if I hear a voice, it could be me talking, or it could be you talking to me. And in a sense, we need a label so that I know what I'm hearing is my voice and not yours. And this takes us right back to my big hero, Helmholtz, who pointed this out in relation to eye movements. So that um, when I move my eyes, obviously things jump about on my retina. So there's movement on the retina, but it's due to me. And I have to be able to distinguish that movement on the retina due to me and movement on the retina due to something actually moving in the world. Mm. And he said, I can't remember his exact terminology, but he basically said, you know, because there's a message, you're sending a message to your eye muscles to move the eye, you can use that as a signal about what the movement is due to, whether it's me or... And he has this simple experiment, if you poke your eyeball with your finger carefully to make it move, the world appears to jump about, because it's the wrong... movement is coming from the wrong place. So I basically took that up... And maybe what goes wrong in schizophrenia is that this signal, normal signal that tells you that it's your movement, doesn't arrive for some reason, or that it's your action. And then Sarah Jane Blakemore later on was doing a PhD with me, and um, she took this further, because this obviously relates to tickling, as you can immediately see, because you can't tickle yourself. Which we know is true because Larry Weisskrantz published it in Nature in whatever sixties or something. Um, the question is why, and the answer is going using this home healthian argument that when you tickle yourself, because you can predict exactly what you're going to feel, it's suppressed. Yeah. And Sarah Jane, we took this into the scanner, and we had various clever bits of equipment so you would tickle yourself directly or indirectly. And she showed you know if you introduce a delay of a hundred milliseconds into the if you're holding a rod, as it were, and tickling yourself with it, you can introduce a delay, and then it feels more ticklish. But the nice thing was she then tried this out in people with schizophrenia, and indeed the ones with delusions of control, if you ask them to rate how ticklish does it feel, there was no difference between them tickling themselves and Sarah Jane tickling them. And we did more sophisticated things after that, so that seemed to fit. So we were beginning to come up with a a more mechanistic story of what might be going wrong. Right. So, so there's this whole sense of agency that, yes, that's, yes, yes, exactly. that, that, that's involved. So yes. when you and I are uh, lifting up glasses of water or, or deciding to look out the window or whatever, yeah. we have no doubt whatsoever that it's, it's we, broadly defined, and hopefully we'll get to what that <laughs> means in a moment, uh, who, who are actually doing that. But the, the idea is that people, at least with some some subset of schizophrenics have a, have a difficult time with this whole concept. Yeah. And it, this similar studies, there's a lady called Judith Ford. She did some very nice work on hallucinations where she showed that normally when we, we suppress the sound of our own voice, which you can measure with EEG or whatever, mm. 
and that this was not happening to the same extent in people who are prone to delusions. So you're getting a similar story. And the obvious question now is, so what about dopamine? <laughs> and in parallel with this, there are very exciting developments in the dopamine story, mostly, I think, due to Wolfram Schultz, who was looking at monkeys. And he showed that there are neurons in the middle of the brain ventral tegmentum and caudate and places like that, which release dopamine. So he was measuring activity in these neurons, and he could show that they were actually predicting reward. In other words, the monkey gets an unexpected reward, these neurons fire. You can then do some conditioning, so the monkey learns that a signal tells it there's a reward coming. Now the signal, of course, is a signal of unexpected reward, and the neurons fire, but the reward is now entirely predicted, and so they don't fire. On the other hand, if the signal comes, they fire, and then if the reward doesn't come when it should come, then they actually go down. So you have a very nice mechanism here, which is telling you whether you're being rewarded or not. And this led to the development of early forms of computational neuroscience, where you can have a very nice story of how learning occurs on the basis of whether your reward goes up or down, and you can then learn to attach rewards to signals and so on and so on. And the dopamine at that time, the previously it was thought, to, in fact that's why our unit started, I'm sorry, okay. it used to be called us a reward thing, so dopamine was released when you were rewarded. But it's now much more sophisticated, it's, it's actually a signal of reward prediction error, as they call it, which is used in learning. And then you have the whole Bayesian story, if you know about that, and you have prior expectations, which, and you have evidence, and then you update your model of the world on the basis of that. So I, I want to get into that in, in a little bit of detail. Yeah, yeah. But my sense is, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that throughout all of your work in schizophrenia, or at least the culmination mm -hmm. of, of many aspects of your work in schizophrenia, have led you to appreciate the important way that the brain acts and... Um, conditions information in such a way that we can learn from it, namely yeah, this yeah. prediction and yeah, yeah. Uh, reinforcement model. And so at some level, it seems to me that you have used schizophrenia as a window to better understanding that insofar as you recognize that, well, with these people, it doesn't seem to be working quite as well as yeah. it should. That seems yeah. aberrant. Is that a yeah. fair yes. way of looking at it? No, I think certainly one of my basic beliefs would be that we should study the abnormal, abnormal systems in order to learn about how it works in the normal case. And in a sense, the abnormal system is simplified a bit. And I've been very influenced by neuropsychologists studying patients with known lesions. And for example, alongside all this was the discovery of things like blind sight and the famous patient DF that Milner and Goodell studied. And I think I'm going thinking about DF. So this is a patient who has, due to carbon monoxide poisoning, damaged the temporal lobe, and so she can no, she's accounts as I think effectively blind. She can no longer she can see, but she can't recognise objects on the basis of their shape. And the fascinating thing that Milner and Goodale recognised is that she wouldn't be able to tell you this is a mug, and she wouldn't be able to tell you where the handle is, but she can reach it correctly. And that gives you the idea that there are these two roughly independent streams, one of which is for recognising what things are, 
and one of which is for reaching and grasping. And in a sense, in the normal case, they're all tied up together and it's very difficult to separate them out. But in the abnormal case, you can start to see these fractionations. Right. I want to get to the, how, the, how the brain is operating. Yeah. Um, and so let me start off with a naive view, which we understand is actually not the case. Yeah. But for the longest time, I think people, people did look at, look at things this way. So the naive view seems to be, right, we have all these receptors out there. We yeah. have these senses that right. we're all equipped with. And evidence data impinges uh, itself upon us yeah. through these various receptors. And so there's that information, and somehow we, we get that. So this is little step which is elided into that information and how it's processed in our mind's eye. But if we just forget about that, we're going around the world, and we have our eyes open, and this hits our, uh, our retina, yeah. and, and we touch things. And, yeah. and because of the senses, there are electrical stimulation and so forth, and it comes to our brain. And so the brain is, is, is somehow this big receiver of information. Yeah. Yeah. And my sense is that... Um, that that's not the way it actually works. So maybe I could get you to just give me give us a, yeah. a, a clear sense of what what we now believe and why. And and one one reason is is the evidence that you just yeah, yeah. gave. The um yes, yeah, so the, I would characterize the earlier version as a feed forward version. So the evidence comes from the senses. It goes to a higher level area. It says you know this this means it must have this shape, and that goes to a higher level area. And it says that means it must be this object and so on and so on. I mean, it's very nice in reading. You can say there are marks on the page. They can get converted to letters. They get converted to words. They get converted to sentences. And then in the old-fashioned box, there are diagrams that would say at the top, the place that sentences go when they are understood. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, Helmholtz, I think, was the first to see that this is clearly wrong. And it's partly because he realised that there was a long, in physiological terms... Even though nerve conduction is rather slow, the time it takes to recognise what an object is is, you know, ten times slower. And he realised that there was something he called unconscious inferences were going on, and we get this experience that this is the object, but we don't, we're not aware of how much work the brain has done to arrive at this point. And then the interesting question is, what is this work? Right. And this is where the idea of some people call predictive coding or the Bayesian approach which basically is, I mean, there are two aspects to this. One is you have to have a prior expectation. From my past experience, I have a very good idea of what's likely to be on this table. And what I use the evidence from my senses to do is to say, was that prior expectation right or not? And if it's right, that's fine. And if it's wrong, I have to slightly change what I think is out there, which leads to the idea that most of the time, since our prior expectations are right, we're not actually taking any account of what's out there. I, mean, I think I say somewhere in my book, which I probably stole from somewhere else, that basically our perception is a hallucination, mildly constrained by reality. <laughs> and a nice example of this, if I can jump about a bit, is the phantom limb. How on earth can someone have a phantom limb when there's no limb actually there? And you would say, well, what motor control theory tells us is that when I perform an action, I have which I think we touched upon before, I have a prediction of where my limb is going to be and what it's going to feel like. And most of the time, my experience of the world is not what my limb is, it's my prediction about where it will be and what it will feel like. And in a sense, the person with the phantom limb still has all these predictions and things intact. And that's what I think results in the phantom limb. 
But the other point about this approach, which we're coming to now, of course, is that not only do we have expectations prior to the evidence from the senses, but we spend a lot of time doing things to the world. And this is where I'm very much influenced by my friend Daniel Walpert, who proudly says when he goes to meetings, I am an engineer, and he's now in the engineering department in Cambridge. And he's also, as I am, a motor chauvinist, because prior to us, there's this, everything was perception. I mean, if we go back to Hubel and Weasel, and they say, we know a great deal about visual perception, and most, if, you have, if one of them draws a picture of the brain, most of it will be visual system. And we would say, in contrast, no, action is what the brain is all about. If you don't have action, you're going to die. And Daniel has this nice anecdote or story or whatever you like to call it, which may I think is actually not entirely true. There's some sort of creature, like a sea squirt, that in its larval form swims about and finds food. But when it matures into an adult, it immediately attaches itself to a rock and never moves again. And the first thing it does is dissolves its brain, but it doesn't need it anymore. Just like someone who's been given tenure. Who <laughs> <laughs> So, you, I mean, Helmholtz also pointed this out because, for example, there's how do you perceive how far away things are? You can use something called parallax, which is basically you move from side to side and the further things move less than the nearer things. So you're using your action, you're making predictions about what will happen when you act to find out more about the world. Right. One of the interesting things uh, that you talk about in, in making up the mind is analogously, at least, or so mm. it seems to me, to how one can look at... Um, abnormal psychology as a window into, uh, into normal psychology or, or, or everyday or normal brain function, you can look at things like visual illusions yes. um, as a way of trying to get an understanding of our normal um, uh, aspect of perception or what yeah. have you, which yeah. is, uh, in, in, in the case of the illusions, being interfered with to some extent, and then you can try to quantify and qualify exactly what's yeah. happening there. No, that's right. I mean, the illusions, again, tell you, in the, the sort of new formulation, you would say, everything depends on prior expectations. And of course, there are circumstances where your prior expectations are completely wrong. And I think that most illusions are indicating where this point is. So many of them depend on seeing something as being 3D when it's really 2D. But a particularly nice one is the hollow mask illusion. So this is where you have a mask, and if you rotate it, if you look at the mask from the back where the nose is sticking away from you, you cannot help but see it sticking out. And you, Richard Gregory used this, you can put rods through it, and when, when you see a rotating hollow mask, when it's facing you, it rotates normally, but when it's the back of it, it appears to rotate in the opposite direction to the way it's actually rotating because you've misperceived it as sticking out. And um, this clearly, I say, is due to have an incredibly strong prior expectation that faces stick out. And this completely overrides the evidence. And what is quite interesting is that in schizophrenia, this illusion is much less strong. Hmm. So there's something funny about the way they integrate their prior expectations and their evidence. 
And, and this may have something to do, you mentioned the word Bayesian a couple yeah, of yeah, times, so yeah. uh, I'd like to go, I'd like to ask you to, to be a little bit more specific, but, but just listening to you, it seems as if that might, in a hand-wavy way, <laughs> link to um, some correlation with a, a notion that their, their Bayesian inferences are not quite what they should exactly, be. Exactly right, yeah. So um, Bayes, of course, was this fascinating chap who was a nonconformist minister in the 18th century, and he was a very good mathematician, although, of course, he wasn't allowed to go to university in England. He had to go to Scotland or something like that. And I'm fascinated by him because he became a fellow of the Royal Society, which is a very difficult thing to do, in spite of not having any published any papers. And the famous paper, which everybody now quotes, was actually published after his death. So it's quite interesting to know how he became a fellow of the Royal Society, but one speculation is that his work was on probability theory, and at that time, many of the people in the Royal Society were actually aristocrats rather than scientists who were particularly interested in gambling. <laughs> <laughs> so it was useful. Yeah, it was useful. <laughs> yeah. But his theorem is basically the way I interpret it, the way people tend to interpret it these days, is how much should you update your prior expectation given this new evidence? And it's a mathematical formula that tells you precisely how much you should change it. And that's the basis of all these predictive coding and so on. And then it becomes more complicated because you can say, well, do I, should I, in certain environments, maybe I should put more weight on the evidence and less weight on my prior expectations or the other way around. Right. So it becomes quite complicated, but it's a very good framework for explaining a lot of, about perception, about action, and about how the brain works in general. And the current view, at least my current view and various other people who actually do very little work on schizophrenia these days, but the people who are working on it, there's one strand which is it's precisely to do with this balance between expectations and evidence, and that dopamine, we now believe, has a more or less direct role in this. Hmm, that's interesting. So I'm curious to know what the mechanism might be for that, but yeah, yeah. perhaps so are you, yeah. I don't know. Yes, I so am I. <laughs> Um, one thing that uh, I thought I would just in interject for clarity, my sense of an essential aspect of this Bayesian framework is how likely or unlikely uh, one of these characteristics is actually going to be. Um, there's a strong correlation in order to appreciate the power of a Bayesian framework with how unusual or usual the thing is that you're going to be predicting or the characteristic yes, yes, that's associated yes. with the thing that you're going you're going to be predicting. That's right. I mean there's some very interesting studies on people in airports who are scanning for guns. And you can easily show that it is so unlikely that a gun is going to be in the luggage that they're not going to see it. And the only way around this is to add some extra ones. Yeah. Yeah. Another area where, where you mentioned explicitly that Bayesian understanding has had great impact is in the health sciences yes. and, and in terms of evaluating risks. And you, oh, yes, you give yes, an example right, yeah. of mammography and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, whether or not it's worth our while to be doing um, a mammogram for the entire population. Yes, I'm not sure whether I can remember this properly, but this is partly to do with base rates so that even if you have a very sensitive test, 
the base rate, if the, if the whole population, if the base rate is sufficiently small, that is to say it's extremely unlikely that someone will have breast cancer in general, then you're going to get vast numbers of false positives and very few correct detections. And it may simply be counterproductive. Right. So uh, an interesting aspect of this to me is that, as you pointed out, and as many people have pointed out, humans are generally not very good at calculating Bayesian probabilities. And so we might think, given the failure rate of any one particular mammogram, Mm. we might think, oh, well, of course it's it's advantageous for everybody to have this. And if you Mm. do the calculation, you find out that, no, the number of false positives is so large that it's actually disadvantageous. So I'm getting, you look like you want to say something, so interject at at any time. So I'm I'm getting to, in a somewhat convoluted way, which is my favorite way to go somewhere, um, to something which has, uh, which troubled me uh, when, I, when I was reading your book, uh, Making Up the Mind. So here's the claim. So the claim is that uh, we, are, we are, generally speaking, lousy at doing Bayesian statistics. Right. People, you and I, and people on the street, and everybody, humans. Um, nonetheless, our brain, by its learning process, is this ideal Bayesian Right. Operator, or, yes, or yes, yes. whatever the word is, I can't remember exactly. Yes, that's right. Is, yeah. is, is, and the reason why is because it, in order to learn effectively and quickly, it needs to have this feedback loop done in the appropriate way. Right. So if it were, if, if its sense of, of calculating probabilities was disastrous, we wouldn't be able to learn as efficiently as we do. Yeah. So I have this brain, as you do and as everybody else does, which is this wonderful Bayesian operator, but me. I'm lousy at it. Yeah. So this this seems to be pointing to some sense of a dualism uh, uh, between what I think I am and what I think my, my brain yeah. is. No, that's absolutely right. And I have learned, I mean, I'm now based in a philosophy department. Okay. So I have to learn some terms. And the term I have learned now for this dualistic aspect is the personal and the subpersonal. Okay. The subpersonal mean doing what the brain does and the personal is what I do, as it were. And I think this is the key point. So the brain is an ideal Bayesian operator at the subpersonal level. And there's some beautiful experiments, which I will probably insist on describing now, demonstrating that, so that, which is about combining the senses. I mean, another mistake people used to make is they can have all these different senses. But of course, as far as the brain is concerned, we don't care about the different senses. We just want to know what's out there. And we use all the information we can get. So this experiment is you have to say, you, you see a bar, and you can also feel it. And you have to say, how wide is it? Or is it different width from another? It doesn't really matter. And then, of course, because they have fancy equipment, you can make it feel different from what it looks. And, and, you can, and obviously you can measure how good you are at telling how wide it is from vision and how good you are from touch. And then you can have them competing. In the usual situation, vision wins and perhaps is ignored because vision is a much more precise sense. But you can make the vision less precise by adding noise. And what you then see, which is what the Bayesian operator predicts, is that you weight the two senses on the basis of the precision of the two signals. So if the vision is very bad, then you now entirely depend on touch. And there's a sweet spot in the middle where they're both equally informative, and then you do better if you have touch and vision than you do with either one on their own. So that's demonstrating the exquisite sort of Bayesian approach that the brain has at the subpersonal level. But you're absolutely right, at the personal level, 
when we're asked to justify things or to do probabilities, we, tip, we can often get it wrong. But this is partly because of the way the problems are presented. It, I think it's ana- precisely analogous to visual illusions. You're presenting problems in such a way that they don't fit the way we've learned to expect things. And I don't. And there's somebody. Uh, there are various people now saying actually we're completely rational. It's just that the we have different prior expectations and the problems are set up to explore. The only example I can think of at the moment is the frame effect, mm. which is where you say, if we've introduced, you've got 1,000 people, and you say, if we introduce this new treatment, it will save 400 lives or something. Or you can say, we have these 1,000 people, and if we bring in this new treatment, there will still be 600 people who die. So the probabilities are absolutely identical, but people's decisions are modified by this frame. And you could say, that's not rational, is it? But I would say, and people begin to say, but of course what we brought up to do is to say when people present a problem, the way they present it is very important. This is what pragmatics is all about. It is the glass half full, glass half empty. You say my glass is half empty, that means please give me some more. (laughs) (laughs) You say my glass is half full, it probably means I've got enough. So we have to look closer at the hermeneutics of, of, yeah, of exactly, these things. Exactly, exactly. Okay. In fact, I've written a paper with Carl Friston about hermeneutics, but we'll... <laughs> so do you, do you actually believe that? Do you believe... So you said some people, you're very um, cagey, you said some people think that it's a question of how these things are being phrased, and, and, yes. and you, do you... I think you I, I'm inclined wrong? to agree with that, and the trouble is I don't know enough about it, but there's this chap, Chris Summerfield, in Oxford, who is going to base an account of why these answers are not actually rational if you consider the problem from a wider perspective. But so, and certainly the base rate thing is we're just not used to thinking about base rates. It's not something we know about. I mean, this is, isn't this the general problem? Of, I mean, it's like, why do people buy lottery tickets? It's completely irrational. Mm. And one reason is that we see lots of... The way to resolve this is to say, every time you see person on television winning the lottery, you should also see all the other people who didn't win the lottery. <laughs> and then you might get a proper experience of... <laughs> but I, I guess for, for me, it's not so much why do people... Because we're sliding towards, it seems to me, why do people behave irrationally? Yes, yeah, sorry. And, no, 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 there's no reason to apologize. Um, that's, that's deeply mysterious in its own right. Um, one can move to all sorts of other areas, like why do people do what they do, which I also don't understand as a general rule. But what I'm, what I'm trying to underscore is the difference between our brains and the processing that they're doing and our minds. And that's yes, a constant okay. theme that, that, yes, that yeah, you have yeah. in, your, in your book. And even I'm willing to accept the fact that there are irrational people. Whether or not that means they have irrational brains as well as irrational minds, uh, I I, I don't know. But even reasonably rational people um, or very rational people have this distinction. So yeah. we can now forget about Bayesian probability. Yeah. That, was a, that was an example of trying yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to look at, uh, uh, at the distinction. And when we talk about whether or not we're convinced of something, our beliefs, yeah, yeah. our desires, yeah, all the rest yeah. of that, we're talking about 
ourselves, yes. uh, and we uh, we all have a fairly clear understanding of what that means, even if we can't specify it yeah, logically yeah. and so yeah, forth. Yeah. And that's very different, of course, than looking at uh, under a, a microscope or an fMRI machine or what have yeah. you uh, of 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 brain activity. Now, what I detect from you is a is a is a bit of an ambiguity, um, which is a, I'm not accusing you of anything other than what every reasonable human being has grappled with throughout the dawn of history. So this is not particularly <laughs> directed at you. But there is this obvious ambiguity if one is a materialist and if yes. one says, yes, we don't believe in a soul or soul stuff or what have you. We, we believe that at some level there's nothing other than physical stuff out there and therefore the brain uh, must cause the mind, as yes. it were. Yeah. Um, and we also have all sorts of other evidence of uh, lesions to the brain and people yeah, behaving yeah, abnormally yeah, and all yeah, the rest yeah. of that, people taking recreational narcotics yeah, and behaving. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are, there's all sorts of reason to believe that that's not a wildly inappropriate uh, link. But the question is, how does it work exactly or even approximately? And you very, I think, appropriately and humbly say, you're not going to, st and this leads us to consciousness, and you say, well, I'm not going to look at so much at, at, at consciousness qua consciousness, because that's too difficult. I'm going to look at what it's for and go through yeah. an evolutionary pathway, and I'll get, but, but I want to put you back on the hook for a moment yes. now and say, okay, we've got these two things. How, how are they linked up? Well, I, I, that's what I've been thinking about mostly since writing the book. And um, it's very much to do with this personal and subpersonal and how they relate. But also, I've become more and more interested in culture and in the sense that the brain is not enough on its own. And it's almost like a tool. But I mean, one thing I think about is our brains, at least genetically speaking, or at birth or something like that, are no different from the brains of people. Our ancestors, I never remember the numbers, was it 200,000 years ago? Well, some people say, whatever, a long time ago. Long time ago, where we're making these crude stone tools and so on. But our adult brains today, I would suspect, are very different from the brains of people 200,000 years ago, because the brain is very plastic, and culture affects the brain. And, for example, I've been involved in the famous taxi driver study, showing that London taxi drivers, their hippocampus actually, or a bit of the hippocampus increases in volume as a result of learning the knowledge. I've been involved in a study which shows that Italian brains are different from English brains because the spelling of Italian and English is so different. And there are innumerable things in modern culture that will make our brains very different from what they were 200,000 years ago. And a lot of this cultural stuff, I think, is, is at the personal level. And um, one of the problems we have is, and this all depends on communication, culture is basically comes from me talking to lots of people or, and other people having an effect on us. It's the interactions between people which create traditions and so on which are then fit back into the system. But to talk to people and describe our experiences and how the mind works is quite difficult. So this is becoming a bit speculative, but there's some nice work, slightly controversial, from Daxter Hoos and colleagues in the Netherlands, where they show that making a complicated decision which involved taking into account 12 different variables, you could do it actually better if you didn't think about it. 
And there's other work suggesting that as soon as you think about things, there's another one which says if you have to recognise a face and you're asked to describe it, that actually makes you worse at recognising it. And the sort of idea is that our subpersonal brain is extremely good at handling a very complicated multidimensional structure. But as soon as it gets up to the personal level, which from my point of view means we have to talk to other people about it, we have to simplify it. We have to reduce the number of dimensions, and we we can do tricks like making them more rich. But in essence, we have to reduce the number of dimensions, and if we choose the wrong dimensions, we're going to make the wrong decision. And I think that might be the sort of thing that's happening in these problem-solving cases. But it's this talking to each other about including things like how the mind works, which creates culture and feeds back into us. Let let me just interject for a moment, because um, I have no problem whatsoever with being speculative, but I don't want to lose the the, the thread. So let me try to um, be a little bit more concrete and and ask you something. Is this what is going on, or is the relevant thing that's going on? I'm immersed in a culture, and so I need to be communicating with you and with with other people around. And that communication necessitates that I am... um, bouncing ideas off you, I am predicting what, how you might respond, exactly, I, am, yes. I am using this, this, this process, this, my, my wonderful Bayesian uh, brain, to be able to uh, predict your behavior, to interact with you, yeah. to have some dialogue with you, which presumably also includes some higher level uh, aspects of empathy and so yeah, forth, yeah, which, yeah. which can be uh, brought into the whole mix. And through that process, that prediction confirmation process my brain is also evolving uh, and it's changing so it's changing its structure which gets to what you said before about how italians have a a different brain than than anglophones and so forth so all of that at least on a hand wavy level i'm okay with but i don't know if that brings me any closer to this sense of how i'm linking my my me my personal level with the subpersonal level. Do you, do you see my, my yes, problem? Yes. And we have talked about that, and I'm not sure whether this is will, how far this goes, but there are clearly, I mean, the way I look at it is that there are signals coming up from the subpersonal level into the personal level, which we can actually talk to people about. And likewise, there are sign- when people tell us things, that somehow influences how the subpersonal level works. So an example of a signal would be, I have, a feel, I have a sense of effort. I feel how hard I'm having to work to do a particular task. And many tasks, the, the longer I do it, the harder it seems to be. And I'm aware of the sense of effort. And I can tell someone, this feels very effortful. And um, indeed, I will say eventually, I'm too tired, I can't do this anymore. Now, there's a very... Nice experiment, not by me, first from Carol Dweck's group, I think, or the first author is called Job, but that doesn't really matter. And they're investigating this phenomenon called ego depletion. Mm. You know about that? Mm. Which is very famous and well established, but now under attack, that if you do a difficult mental task, or if you have to inhibit yourself from eating nice food, it exhausts your mental muscle, and you will have difficulty with another executive task immediately afterwards. 
Now, what these people did is they added an additional group. So they had, I mean, they did several experiments, but there are two groups. One group is told, when you do a difficult mental task, it will, it's like a muscle, it will, you will feel tired and it will be difficult to do something further. The other group is told, when you do a difficult mental task, you will feel energised and ready for more work. And lo and behold, the people who were told that they would feel tired made more Stroop errors after the executive task, and the people who were told they would be energised made fewer Stroop errors after the task. So that seems to me a very diff direct example of you being told how your mind works, influencing your behaviour at this low level. Hmm. So you, you have a mechanism for in interaction between these different different levels, concrete interaction. So what? So then what? What is what? What's so the mechanism? Yeah, what's the mechanism? <laughs> well, this is becoming extremely handy. <laughs> There's another experiment that I hope might, I think gets us a bit closer to the mechanism that you know all these common goods games. You interact with someone and you have to learn whether they're trustworthy or not. So if, they, if you invest money and they give you some money back, they're more trustworthy. And if they don't give you the money back, they're less trustworthy. And you can have a completely standard learning algorithm using prediction errors. So if they give you more money back, their trust goes up. And if they give less money back, the trust goes down. You can see these prediction errors happening in the brain where the dopamine is. That's all fine. The interesting thing is if you tell them this is a very trustworthy person, both behaviorally and in terms of brain function, they stop noticing the prediction errors. Hmm. So they're less influenced by the actual behavior of the person. You see less prediction error activity in the middle of the brain. And in the Bayesian terminology, you say the mechanism here is that you've been given the prior that this is a trustworthy person, so you downweight how much attention you pay to their actual behavior. This is almost analogous to the tickling thing. Yes, right? yes, sort of. Yes, that's a good point. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. That's and I guess you would say in the mental efforts, and there are other similar things, it's partly how should I interpret it, but I, mean, I, I think you can explain it all in these very high-level priors. So the ego depletion is fascinating because now almost everybody in the world who's read the books and so on has this high-level prior that... <laughs> and, but you could change this. Right. <laughs> and there's another interesting analogous experiments on free will, which I'm sure you want to talk about eventually, um, where you can... You can say to people, all sensible people these days don't believe in free will. Francis Crick has said in his book that, you know, that we've proved that there's no such thing. It's all completely, everything is predetermined. If you tell people that, and if they believe it, because you give them a little questionnaire, they will be more likely to cheat in tests. They become less helpful in social situations. Because you're not responsible. Yes. They become, but what is fascinating to me is there's this phenomenon called post-error slowing. So if you do a choice reaction, to a reaction time task, after you've made an error, you will slow down. Because obviously you're monitoring yourself and you're saying, I'm doing it too fast. So they show less post-error slowing if they don't believe in free will. And the amplitude of their readiness potential in the brain becomes smaller. I think the prior here is how much control do I have over my behavior? So you, if you, you now believe I have less top-down control. Or none. Or none, mm -hmm. yeah. So these, I think these are hints at the kinds of mechanisms that we might, and, that, and, that, and my current research project is precisely on to try and discover something about these.
mechanisms. Interesting. I, I would, as you had predicted, uh, <laughs> ironically enough, like to talk about free will. Um, but before I do, I'm going to ask a somewhat different question. Um, so we've talked about humans yes. and the human brain and how somehow interactions between humans can affect the, the developments of, of that brain and broadly defined culture and so forth. But of course, humans aren't the only living things around. So might there be some sense of a meta-theory which extends um, in principle to animals, to, to other, yeah. well, let's just say animals, <laughs> to make it the Plants, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, one of the things that we're all, I'm very interested in, and impacts particularly on the sorts of things we've been talking about, is what's the difference? Because obviously the Bayesian brain story and the basic reinforcement learning story is found at least in all mammals. And... Um, Everybody these days is interested in decision-making as the basic model of what we want to study things. And I've been interested in group decision-making. By group, I mean two people making a decision together. And you can show that two people working together in the right circumstances will make a better decision than either one, either one on their own. And believing that this, I think, no, I think we've shown that this depends on communication. And then you immediately think, but what about bees? Or at least I immediately think, what about bees? Because bees also make joint decisions. They make joint decisions about where are they going to... When they swarm, scouts go out and they come back from different sites and they have a sort of argument and so on. And they, they do they a little dance, don't they? They do a little dance, yeah. but they, the scouts come back from different places. So this scout's saying go there and this scout is saying go there and then they, somehow they come up with an agreement and they all go off to one place. And it's usually the best place. So what's different? So how is that different from humans? And I guess all you can really say is, well, bees can only do it for new nest sites. Oh, well, whatever. Or, I mean, or, that's just a, that, that's just a very yes. Yeah, so we're saying we're more flexible. That's not <laughs> <laughs> we can come up with completely novel problems, and in a sense, and novel ways of communicating. The bees can only dance, and we can do it with words or semaphore or. But from a mechanistic perspective, from a, from a large-scale perspective, one could argue it's the same thing. It's the same thing, yeah. Hmm. And they've even suggested that the way bees make decisions are actually very closely similar to the way that neurons in the mammalian brain interact to make their decisions. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't be terribly surprising, given no, what you've yes, said. No, no, not really. So that's one, so it's very difficult to say, and what's the difference? So, and in fact, bees seem to be rather better at communicating than non-human mammals, I would guess. Although that becomes more and more interesting, and that there's a lot of argument about culture, and there's some suggestion that chimpanzees and rats and so on do have culture, but it's trivial compared to ours, and to some extent it's not cumulative. So the chimpanzees in one place or the rats in Jerusalem have different ways of stripping fur cones or something. But it's very, what's the word, and fragile and can be lost. Mm. Might it have something to do with the lack of appreciation? I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, if we were here in London 200 years ago, there would be a rather different sentiment uh, expressed by... Uh, not myself, because I'm a colonial, of course, but 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 but, but by a, uh, a British imperialist who would be 
saying without hesitation whatsoever that these other lower races or lower yes, places yes. just don't have any sense of culture or civilization. Well, that's right, yes. Uh, and, and maybe we're just doing the same thing now well, towards possibly, rats possibly, or something possibly, like that. Yes. yes, one should never forget that possibility. I mean, I'm not convinced that the rats have... I mean, they certainly don't have... Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we have which they don't have is institutions. <laughs> Which is good and bad. <laughs> like the Royal Society or, or libraries. Or, but then, of course, 2,000, 100,000 years ago, we didn't either. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, which isn't really that, not, all that long ago. No, uh, yeah. but, uh, but then we'd have to argue about the merits of the Royal Society and our yeah. libraries. So that's a whole different uh, uh, kettle of fish. Um, let's move to free will. There were these very influential experiments that were conducted by Benjamin Libet. Yes. Well, Libet had this very clever idea that he would... I mean, it depended on the discovery of this bright shaft potential, or redness potential, I should call it, which is easy to measure. It's a negative-going potential that you can measure with one electrode stuck here. And whenever you lift your finger spontaneously, the, this negative potential goes gradually up for about one second, and then you lift your finger and it goes down again. So you can measure that. So his idea was that you would ask people to lift their finger whenever they've had the urge to do so, were his words. And you could measure the readiness potential to see when it started going up. And you could also ask them to say, when did you have the urge to lift your finger? And that's slightly controversial, but it's actually been done many other ways, so the basic technique is fine. So there was a little clock that went round and round, and you had to say, what was the time on the clock when you decide to lift your finger? And what he found, and what has been replicated many times, is that in the brain it starts to go up about 500 milliseconds before you lift your finger. The brain activity precedes the report of when they decided to lift their finger. In other words, in principle, although one's quite done it yet, you could predict when they were going to lift their finger before they could. And um, I copied this and I did it in the scanner and I asked people to, rather than went, I said, what? In the Libet case, it's the question is, they have to decide when to lift their finger. And I did a similar thing, except they had to decide which finger to lift, and that's been done too. And I think John Dylan Haynes in Berlin has shown, using fMRI, that you can actually predict something like six seconds in advance. Six which, seconds? Which finger they're going to lift. Wow. But that's slightly complicated, because it's all about blood flow and stuff. Yeah. But yes, you can clearly predict in advance which finger they're going to lift. Really? I don't know what I'm doing six seconds in advance. Six seconds is a long time. Yeah. Well, in this case, all you're doing is lying in a scanner. So. Right. <laughs> okay. And there are various critiques of this. I have several problems with this experiment. One is, in a few like the cultural problem, um, when you say to somebody, I want you to stay in this room for half an hour and lift your finger whenever you have the urge to do so. This is a very funny instruction. And one thing that is implied is that if Dr. Libet comes back after half an hour, he will not be very pleased if you say, I never had the urge to lift my finger. So this is a frame problem again. This is a sort of a frame problem. So you're going to say, right, I'm going to ha I clearly have to lift my finger from time to time. And because it's to do with internal urges, I, should probably do, I shouldn't do it every six seconds or something. I should, effectively, I should, at random intervals, lift my finger. And I think that's what the instruction really means. And you can show that if you ask people, instead of lift whichever finger you like, you ask them to lift them at random, exactly the same sort of brain activity is seen. 
Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this because, in a sense, if you relate this to free will, this is saying free will, there's two alternatives. Either we have free will or everything is predetermined. If everything is predetermined, then I can predict what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. So to demonstrate that I have free will, I have to behave in an unpredictable manner, which doesn't sound quite right. And then I found this marvellous experiment on cockroaches that shows that, well, I should say, first of all, people are very bad at being unpredictable and at generating random numbers. And I have a nice anecdote for you, as I once had a chat with Roger Penrose, who was complaining to me about when he was a boy, he didn't mind his brother beating him at chess because he was European chess champion, but he objected to his brother beating him at stone, paper, scissors. <laughs> so he memorised some random number to him. <laughs> so in fact, you can beat people at stone, paper, scissors if you take into account their lack of randomness. Anyway, so there's a nice experiment showing that cockroaches, unlike people, can behave randomly. If you blow at them, they change direction in a completely, random manner. completely at random. So in that sense, cockroaches have free will, but we don't. So I'm saying maybe this, uh, this predetermination idea is not the way to think about free will. When I think about having dismissed determinism as a key... I mean, there are other problems with free will, like certain philo as Enlightenment philosophers say the free man is someone who always makes the rational decision. I, I, I'm not sure whether that gets right, you know, that's... In which case... If you know what the rational decision is, you can predict what they're going to do, or the best decision, whatever it is. So that, and then that's even, to some extent, taken seriously, because you say the only way to demonstrate that I have free will is to do something completely stupid and against my interests. And that doesn't make any sense either. No, it doesn't. It sounds like something that a really, a really uh, dogmatic economist would say. Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about the relationship between free will and responsibility. So we have a sense of agency, and we also, it seems to be very closely tied to our sense of responsibility, by which I mean we can be held responsible for things. And according to the new science of experimental philosophy, if you go and ask the folk, the folk will tell you that people are not responsible for actions of which they are not conscious at the time, or something like that. And indeed, somebody recently got off murdering their wife because they did it while they were sleepwalking or something like that. So that seems to be... A, so you, there's a very tight relationship between experience of agency and being in control and um, consciousness and responsibility. And I'm sure you know about Patrick Haggard and his intentional binding measure. And a previous study showed that you've got more intentional binding, in other words, a greater sense of agency when you were making a moral decision as opposed to an economic decision. And they've just published a paper which is very nice about basically the sort of Milgram type effect that you feel less responsibility and there's less intentional binding if you're simply doing some, what somebody told you. So this is framing yet again? Yes, it's all about framing. And um, the suggestion is that we learn to be, perhaps we learn culturally to be responsible for our actions. I mean, that's what Epicurus said long ago, by getting praise and blame. And I certainly noticed with my children that they very rapidly get onto the idea that you say I did it. It was an accident. You learn that very quickly as a justification for thinking out. Yeah, I think the fact that our conscious, what we can tell people about, is rather inaccurate and malleable, is actually helpful in this respect because there's this nice experiment by Pert 
Petter Johansson, which you probably know, where he shows he has two packs of cards with faces of ladies, and you have to say which one did you prefer, and then they put them face down and they push it forward and they say, explain why, and they're very clever conjurers, and so on 25% of trials, the one they push forward is not the one that you chose. And most of the time, people don't notice this and explain why they chose it. <laughs> so this is the sort of... They're not very <laughs> attending that much to our right. decisions, but we're very keen on justifying them, even if we didn't make them. And I think is this justification... This is what we spend a lot of time interacting with each other and what culture is very keen about saying what's justified and what's not justified is in a sense we learn to feel responsible for our actions, we learn to feel that we have free will. And this is actually very important for social cohesion. So in these e economic type experiments, I'm sure you know, you get people called free riders who appear, which destroys the cohesion. And you can recreate the cohesion if you're allowed to punish the free riders. But you only punish free people if they are responsible for their actions. So Tanya Singer did an experiment where you would if you're told this person is not actually playing the economic game, not deciding, they're just reading off a sheet, then you don't punish them. So the, I think the belief, the feeling that we have are responsible for our actions and that therefore we can be punished for those done deliberately and which are bad, is very important. So I think I tend to believe that we do have free will, but I would say even if we don't have free will, it's very important that we believe that we do. Mm. Do, do, other, do other animals, um, listening to you talk about the free riders, I'm wondering, are there analogous circumstances with other members of the animal kingdom? Are there free riding bees in some way? And, and if so, do they get punished or, or, or some other? I, I don't know about the bees. I mean, bees are strange because they're all right, brothers and sisters. So right. might, yeah. But are there other examples in the, the animal kingdom? And do they I get think there are. I mean, the only one I know about, that, and I should look into that more closely, you know about the cleaner fish. No. So the cleaner fish are these little fish that clean the big fish. Oh, yes. Yes, yes okay. those fish, yeah. Right. And they, I think they have free riders in a way because what the, the, what the cleaner fish is supposed to do is eat the parasites. But what they actually want to do is, eat, is bite the fish and eat the mucus. So in a sense, a free rider in this case is the one that bites the fish when it's sort of been eating the parasites. And they certainly get punished, if not eaten, that's a, an extreme <laughs> form of punishment. <laughs> yes. And um, they have a system of reputation management, so that they actually don't bite them if they're being watched by other client fish <laughs> and things like that. So in a sense, there is all that sort of thing going on at this right. level. And there's some suggestion that, chimp I mean, as you know, chimpanzees are very weird in all sorts of ways. They seem to be much less concerned with reputation than other animals. But that's another story. I'm sure and they're, they're supposed to be free riders in, what is it, these bacteria called um, slime moulds. So slime moulds are single-celled organisms, but when they reproduce, they come together and form a sort of multicellular thing which has a budding stalk, and the ones at the top die, I think, and the oh. others don't. So. so I don't really know about this. <laughs> oh, it would be interesting just to check, because you, uh, you could test your free-riding hypothesis yeah. in terms yeah. of, of that. Um, You've been very indulgent with both your time and your willingness to speculate, which I, <laughs> which I'm very grateful for. I'm going to try to push you a little bit more yeah. uh, in terms of speculation. Here's what I was thinking again as you were talking. So, I understand that you've looked at abnormal psychology and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. We talked about dopamine mm -hmm. as a way of 
I mean, obviously for, for research uh, in its own right, but also as a way of better understanding potential mechanisms um, yes. that we all have with linking the brain and the, and the mind in terms of hallucinations and what's, what's not going right and, and so forth. And you talked a little bit about these dopamine yeah. factors and so forth. And my sense is that Uta with autism um, is, is also investigating through the prism of autism general social behavior yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, in, a, in a similar way. Um, now, autism we talk about today being on a spectrum. Yes. So one could imagine, first of all, schizophrenia being on a spectrum, but one could imagine perhaps even more interestingly, everything being on a spectrum, which is to say that rather than put a label on someone and say this person is autistic and this person is schizophrenic and because, because there are sufficient external objective yeah. criteria that we recognize that they go over here, which tends to be at the top yeah. end of the spectrum, we frame the human condition in terms of our understanding of this cognitive sociology yeah. um, and our ability to be able to interact in this cultural way, we would have some overarching mechanism through which we could interpret everyone. So that, that's to say that we're all on a spectrum. Is that, is that, am I, so this is, this is hugely speculative, I appreciate it. And it's not in, in any way to say that everyone is equivalent or that they're all suffering the same thing or that people who are uh, uh, severely autistic or severely schizophrenic are not uh, in, in a very different situation than, than the rest of us. I'm not in any way trying to insinuate any of that. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about a larger framework. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm, my, I cannot resist my response to this, which is there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who believe in spectra and those who believe in categories. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we know what, uh, what kind of person you are. Yeah. <laughs> And Uta is, of course, not very happy about the autistic spectrum. It's less developed in the case of schizophrenia, but there are certainly people who believe in that, you know, that there's a spectrum of, say, hallucinations and that they're very interested in so-called normal people in the population who hear voices. And that's very interesting. And in the case of schizophrenia, there are obviously other categories who have delusions and hallucinations, most notably neurological patients. So there's the Capgras syndrome, where people believe that their wife has been replaced by a robot, or their spouse, I should say, has been replaced by a robot. And that sometimes happens in schizophrenia, but it's more typically associated with dementia or damage to particular bits of the brain. And I suppose what I'm getting at is there might be a spectrum of symptomatology, but I'm not sure whether that necessarily means that there's a spectrum of diagnostics or disease or causes or something like that. I, mean, I, I suspect that schizophrenia will turn out to have many different causes with the same end result. Might even be like fever, I mean, as local as that. In the olden days, people used to study mental deficiency, which basically means people with low IQ, which is clearly a spectrum of IQ. And what's happening now with the new genetics that every month or so they discover a new single gene disorder which accounts for 1% of this category. And I think something similar is beginning to happen with autism, so they're talking about de novo mutations and various things which account, again, I think they've now got up to 5% or something like that. So it all depends on what it's a spectrum of. Right. 
in retrospect, I don't think I quite enunciated what I was what I was thinking very well. So I'm I'm perhaps that's because I don't have a very clear representation in my own mind. Um, so let me let me start again. Uh, clearly, there are circumstances whereby someone start cons will start exhibiting a, a radically different form of behavior yes. than someone yeah. else. Yeah. And one might say, theoretically, there may be a spectrum or there may not be a spectrum, but clearly this person is doing something very, very different. If I yeah. think that my wife is a robot, I'm yeah. not acting the same way that, yeah. that I'm acting today or, yeah. or that yeah. other people maybe are, are acting. So that's, that's obvious. And, and again, I'm not in any way trying to minimize the pain and suffering that people who are afflicted with those illnesses have or their loved ones have around them, uh, which is, of course, very severe. But I'm thinking in terms of these concepts that you were talking about before, which is to say, I'm thinking about these two issues. One is the brain is going around making these Bayesian predictions. Yes. And somehow, through cultural means or whatever, however we wave our hands, there is a scaling up or an interaction between the brain doing that and our own self and our own mm, awareness yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah. There's, there's some connection there. And it's interesting that there seem to be some windows into exploring what that scaling up, what that mechanism is, yeah, and yeah. also the lack of ability that individual brains have in terms of their Bayesian mechanisms. Mm, yeah. um, and so I'm thinking, if instead of just for, in terms of the mechanics and the principles, if instead we just forget about words like schizophrenia, yeah. we forget about words like autism, we forget about all, all these things, yeah. we realize that there are mechanisms and that genetics has, has a large <laughs> aspect to play here and, and whatever we call environment. So, but let's forget about that too. Yeah. I'm willing to forget okay. about a lot yeah. of things. And instead we say, no, no, the thing really to concern ourselves with is whether or not our brains are really being ideal Bayesian observers and this way that our brains can be connected to our minds. And that in some cases, these things, one of the two of these things really breaks down severely. Right. And, and sometimes it manifests itself over here as schizophrenia, sometimes it manifests itself as something else and, and, and whatever. And that's all very complicated and real and we have to pay attention to it and fund medical research and all the rest of that. But, but maybe the framework to be looking at these things is through those particular two degrees of freedom, that prism. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Does that make any sense somehow or not? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, so if we take the Bayesian story and, for example, say there has to be a balance between prior expectations and evidence, and you could presumably have a complete continuum of where this balance lay, and one extreme might lead you to schizophrenia, and I'm not sure what the other extreme would lead to. Is that, I mean, that, yes. that would be fine, yes. And there might be many different reasons causes, both genetic and environmental, exactly. as to why this balance might be upset. Exactly, but that's yes, what that, you're looking at. That's yes, that's, that would be fair. Yes, I would agree with that. Although it's, one has to make it clear that I it's not that this single balance is a bit too simplified. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But, you know, from that, that's the physicist in me wanting to tear <laughs> everything else away and, you know, no air yeah, resistance, yeah. no yeah. anything, and just, yeah. just try to get at some basic underlying principles. Um, so uh, let, let me try to wrap up. You've been very, uh, you've been very generous, uh, and, and but I, I really appreciate your your willingness to speculate because I think that's fascinating for for a lot of people. So, in terms 
you may not be willing to do this, but I'm going to ask the question nonetheless. So let's look at schizophrenia, which is a condition that you've had a lot of experience at, at all sorts of levels, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you were steered out of a clinical stream, perhaps to all of our benefits, um, certainly to, to the benefit of many. Um, nonetheless, what would your fearless predictions be, uh, or fearful predictions be, in terms of the future of treatment for schizophrenia based upon what, what you've uh, witnessed so far. Do you, do you have any, anything to say there? Well, I think the situation that currently is, is rather bleak in the sense that we have these antipsychotics. They reduce the symptoms in most cases. They have nasty side effects. And the drug companies have failed to discover better versions. They were the atypical antipsychotics, and it now seems clear that the only reason they were better is because people were giving them in smaller doses. And many of the drug companies have actually pulled out because they can't see what's going to happen. On the other side, we have things like cognitive behaviour therapy, which people have been very keen on, but again, the sort of it's not clear from various recent meta-analyses of how good that actually is. So that I think there's nothing obviously, I mean other people would give you a completely different story I have to say, but that's my feeling. The developments in cognitive neuroscience and so on I think are promising and they might come up with a completely different approach to the drug treatment and NMDA receptors, NMDA influence seems perhaps more important than dopamine. But that is yet to be seen. And I guess the, the sort of cognitive approach is to saying, what are the mechanisms which produce these symptoms and what is it actually like to have them, might be harnessed to come up with better cognitive type therapies. But I don't see them immediately at the moment, and that's not something I'm involved with. Yeah. So I would say... I think there are exciting developments in the cognitive neuroscience, but it's not clear to me that they will have an immediate effect on treatment. But hopefully they will eventually. Let me... I'm sorry, did you want to say one more thing? No, I was thinking the genetics, likewise, there's a huge amount of effort going into trying to discover genetic basis, and at the moment it's coming up with small risk factors and not much else. Let me, let me ask you a question I ask um, every scientist I can... I can remember to ask, which is, if I were an omniscient being, if I were God, and I could answer any three questions that you would have, what sorts of questions would you ask me? So I guess there would be two questions, really. One is, I mean, I'm not quite sure, this is, I'm reminded of the joke about the Pope, <laughs> the Polish Pope, who is allowed, who, are, you know, who has his audience with God every week, and asks him three questions, which is, will women be ordained? And he says, not in your lifetime or something like that. And there's another, I can't remember what the second question was, but the third question was, will there be another Polish Pope? And God replies, not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's a bit like, so I would like to ask God, will the biological basis of schizophrenia be discovered? And I wouldn't be surprised if he says, not in your, your lifetime. Yeah which is sort of to show that the people still around who think it's all cultural <laughs> are wrong. Are, are there still people yes, still, still Yeah. 
What, what percentage of people still, or roughly? I mean, what, what? Well, at least the people who say we don't like the medical model and it's not a disease. And, um, and I guess the other question would be the same sort of thing about consciousness. I mean, I, it, it, it seems to me that people, what was a hundred years ago or slightly more, used to the big mystery is what is life? And in fact, life and consciousness were more or less the same thing. So Frankenstein's monster, or whatever you like to call it, had both. And my impression now that life is sort of solved, or people don't talk about it anymore. I mean, DNA and replication and all this stuff. And I presume that something similar will happen to consciousness, and I'd love to know what it looks like. Because many people say the problem with trying to solve the problem of consciousness is that we don't even know what the answer will look like. So I would ask God, what will the answer look like? Good question. Is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about or we've talked about too briefly that you'd like to uh, embellish upon? No, no, I hate that. No? Okay, well, I've had a wonderful time, Chris. Thank, thank, you, thank you very much. That was, was great. great fun, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Diana Deutsch, Stephen Hinshaw, Stephen Coslin, and Jonathan Schooler. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.